We are uh, continuing. So we're continuing a series we started last week called Why God Why, and it's all about this idea of suffering, trials, hardship uh, in our life. Now, if you've never asked this question personally, you've heard it uh, mentioned, maybe you've heard it mentioned this way, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? That's one of the most common questions uh, that you could probably hear from people talking about Christianity. Hey, why do bad things happen to good people? And uh, we're trying to break that down to help us walk through a better understanding of suffering and why we ask the why question. So last week we started very simply with just why do bad things happen? All right. Why, why did they happen at all? And, uh, and I, you know, you and I might not come to the same outcome. We may not go to the same place uh, every single time, but here's what I want to do. And I usually do this with most series. I usually have a verse or some sort of statement that allows us to, to be on the same page of the start of the conversation. Even though, again, outcome, you may disagree. You may go a different direction than me. Uh, but I want us to be on the same page as we start the conversation. And so I've created kind of a summary, uh, you know, run-on kind of question that prompts where we are in terms of asking the question, why God, why? And I'll read it uh, for you this morning. Here's the question. It says, can God be a good, good father who is all-powerful and able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine? merciful and sovereign over all things, who loves us so much that he sacrificed his only son for us and our sin, and yet fully experience hatred and abuse, unjust persecution, financial ruin, fatal diseases, depression and mental illness, devastating consequences of personal sin, irreparable chronic pain, loneliness and despair, violence and death, and still be in the center of God's perfect will? And the answer to that question is yes. That's where we're starting. That both of those truths work together and both of those truths are true. And Jesus said it very simply when he said, look, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And so we see both truths you know, existing in just that one statement of Jesus in terms of promising us that we will experience hardship. We will experience uh, trials. And last week I worked through, and I'll just give you uh, the quick summary here, I worked through uh, just an illustration of uh, what it is that we need to better understand suffering uh, in our own lives. So uh, everybody has uh, mountains and valleys, right? We all have mountains and valleys. And, uh, you know, mountaintop experiences right here and valley experiences. We all, we all have those, all right? Now, I said last week that um, when things take a turn circumstantially, when you start to have some trials, hardship, things like that, there, there comes a point, uh, usually in the turn somewhere, where what you believe about God does not line up with what you're feeling, what you're experiencing. That's just, that's just the way it is. Now, what you believe is true, what you claim to have faith in uh, is what you're doing, but you don't really seem to be feeling or experiencing that. And so I call this a crisis of belief moment. When you ask, this is where you ask the question, why? Right? Now, we talked at, ex- at length last week, I won't kind of recover that, but that we talked a lot about what, you know, how do we process that, those crisis of belief moments, and how do we talk, how do we properly really ask the question why, and what do we expect from God uh, when we do that? Now, uh, we know that regardless of what may happen in our valleys, that we believe that when you take the turn, whether your circumstances change or not, that God uses 
our suffering to grow us. And we read Romans and James where we talked about, you know, this, this kind of uh, suffering produces endurance and endurance produces hope and hope, this hope doesn't disappoint. Uh, we talked about James where he said we, we count all of these opportunities uh, as an opportunity, these sufferings as an opportunity for joy. Right? We count it as an opportunity for joy and to continue to go. And as we grow, we can get to a place where we really lack nothing, where we have a big, proper understanding of that. Now, that's true, but at the same time, uh, we, most Christians, like to believe and really kind of fall for the fact that what, the way we grow is mountaintop to mountaintop, right? That this is the way we grow. God builds bridges and lets us go from one amazing mountaintop experience to another. And I'll be, I'll be truthful, that, that is the way it works. Like, like, we don't have to learn everything the hard way. Can I get an amen, right? Okay, we don't have to learn everything the hard way. We do get those bridge moments. We do get to experience kind of the mountaintop to mountaintop experience. But the problem is if we don't understand this in contrast to this, then we will not, we will not have what I called last week a proper theology of suffering. We won't make it through the, the, um, the, the why questions. We won't make the turn after we hit rock bottom. We won't really begin to see this as an opportunity to grow. And that's what the purpose of the series is, is to help us uh, with that. Last week I talked about, I used the example of Habakkuk in the Old Testament and, and the fact that for him, uh, he showed us what it looked like was to embrace and wrestle. That's what his name actually means. That part of this theology of suffering is that we, want to, we, we have to have this ability to embrace what we know to be true about God, embrace what we believe, embrace our faith, and yet still be okay to wrestle with what we're feeling, to wrestle with what we're experiencing, to wrestle with what doesn't seem to line up, with what doesn't align with what we, what we want to see happening in our life. And so uh, last week as we talked about that, we just said, listen, that's, that's part of how we're going to get through um, the crisis of belief. Now, when you start asking the big question, hey, why did bad things happen to good people? That's a great question. People can answer that, thing, that question theoretically across the board. Uh, but here's the way we're going to go with it today. Um, we're going to get really honest and really kind of down into, into the grit of the fact that you, when you ask this question, maybe every once in a while you ask it from a big, broad standpoint about good people. But really, most of the time, if we're honest, when we, when we ask the why question, we're usually asking this question, why me? Right? Why is this happening to me? Why am I having to go through this valley? Why, why am I having to go through this hardship and this struggle and this suffering? Like, God, why me? And so today I want to give you several biblical examples of some folks we can learn from that not only ask this question, but, but for, for the example that we're going to give today, really processed and worked through with a proper, I would say, a proper theological understanding and theology, theology of suffering in terms of what God wanted to do even in the midst of their suffering. So the first person I want to introduce you to is named uh, Heman, or sorry, Haman the Ezraite. Okay? Now, Haman the Ezraite, I'll probably say his name wrong about three times, because when I read it, I read the word He-Man. Right? <laughs> Why? Because I'm a child of the 80s, and I loved He-Man. Okay? And every person did. Like, he had a magic sword where he could call down the lightning and go from like a normal person to like, you know, Mr. Universe, Hulk, 
you know, master, you know, and like a superhero, kind of a fantasy medieval superhero. And uh, if you go back and watch it now, it's just awful. It's horrible, right? But as a kid, like that was it. So, uh, so if you hear me mess up today, it's because I can't help but have uh, He-Man in my mind. But it's actually Haman, the Ezraite. And what we learn about him is that he, from First Chronicles, we actually learn that he is uh, what we would kind of we would kind of look at one as like a musical, uh, a creative arts pastor, or a music uh, music director, or a worship leader. He's he's someone who kind of orchestrates musically uh, the poems and the psalms and the things. He's also someone who writes it, who's very creative. He writes and, and so he kind of organizes the poets. He organizes the the musicians around some of these expressions, these prayers, these these poems, these psalms, because you're going to see a lot of what he writes in the psalms. Matter of fact, in the 40s and the 80s, he probably has uh, a dozen or so psalms that are attributed uh, to Haman the Ezraite. And we're going to look at one of them today, one of them that's actually from him. It actually says it's from him uh, personally. This is a personal prayer and psalm. We're going to look at Psalm 88. In case you have your Bibles with you, you can look it up. I'll put it on the screen and read through the whole psalm. But this is, this is from uh, this is from Haman, the Ezraite. It says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you by day. I come to you at night. Now hear my prayer. Listen to my cry. For my life is, what does it say? Yeah, sorry. If you're new here, I want you to repeat after me. So my life is what? Yeah, it's full of troubles. And death draws near, and I'm as good as dead, like a strong man with no strength left. They have left me among the dead, and I lie like a corpse in the grave. I am forgotten, cut off from care. You have thrown me into the lowest pit, into the darkest depth. Your anger weighs me down. With wave after wave, you have engulfed me. You have driven my friends away by making me repulsive to them. I'm in a trap with no way of escape. My eyes are blinded by my tears. Each day, I beg for your help, O Lord. I lift my hands to you for mercy. Are your wonderful deeds of any use to the dead? Do the dead rise up and praise you? Can those in the grave declare your unfailing love? Can they proclaim your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Can the darkness speak of your wonderful deeds? Can anyone in the land of forgetfulness talk about your righteousness? Oh, Lord, I cry out to you. I will keep on pleading day by day. Oh, Lord, what's that word? Why do you reject me? Again, what is it? Why do you turn your face from me? I have been sick and close to death since my youth. I stand helpless and desperate before your terrors. Your fierce anger has overwhelmed me. Your terrors have paralyzed me. They swirl around me like floodwaters all day long. They have engulfed me completely. You've taken away my companions and my loved ones. Darkness is my closest friend. Wow, right? He's not going to work for Hallmark anytime soon, right? You know, I want you to know as I was studying this, this is, this is important, is that for, for Haman, we're going to talk about where he's at, and I like to call this place right here, I like to call this place rock bottom. Everybody say rock bottom. Oh, one more time like you're there, rock bottom. Rock bottom, okay? 
We're going to talk about this place where he finds himself and where we oftentimes find ourselves and some things that happen when we are there, when we are in this rock bottom place. But you know, one of the things that hit me about this, um, this psalm is that in the Hebrew, the very end of the psalm, the very end of the, of the expression, the very end of the prayer, the Hebrew word is actually darkness. So it's, to better translate it, it actually should be something along the lines of, my closest friend is darkness, period. That's how he ends his prayer. That's how he ends this time of desperation. And one of the things we see about Haman is that he really is experiencing darkness, not just externally. He talked about death, and he talked about where he, where he is and what he feels around him, but he's experiencing darkness and desperation internally because of the pain, because of the suffering, because of the hardships that he's experiencing in life. And one thing to remember is that he is a Christian. He is a, he is a follower of God. He is a part of the Jewish nation. Now, I want to quote to you sometimes uh, people's response to this. I want to quote to you another great line from a beautiful piece of, uh, of work called The Princess Bride. And I want you to see this quote. I love this quote from the Dread Pirate Roberts. He says, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something, right? Life is pain. Now, I don't know if I fully am going to ever adopt that, you know, philosophy of life. I don't know if I'm ever going to completely agree with that statement in terms of the cynical uh, negative view of that. But it says, hey, anybody who sells differently is selling something. And here's what I really do believe about what, what we see and experience in Christianity is that I don't believe, if you read Scripture, I don't believe Christianity is selling anything. I don't believe the Bible sells us any beautiful, some sort of picture of roses and blessing and all that kind of thing. I just don't think that's what the Bible uh, says. The problem is, is that we as believers, we, we as followers of Christ, we are so bad, and we're going to talk about why, we are so bad at walking through the, the, the rock bottom at helping people walk through rock bottom, at being okay with even confessing our own experiences in darkness at the rock bottom, that by, the, by omission, by omission, we sell Christianity as a, a suffering-free religion. Like, we want to skip over that part. We want to just kind of cruise past it. Well, the Bible doesn't cruise past it at all. But sometimes by omission, because we are just not good at expressing the words like, like Haman expresses. We are not good at walking with people through their rock-bottom experiences. We, by omission, really try to sell something that doesn't exist. Again, not a good theology of suffering. Now, the two words I want you to, to, to pay attention to today are the two things at work when we hit rock-bottom. Everybody say rock-bottom. When we hit rock bottom, there are two things at work all the time when we hit rock bottom. And I'm not going to write them all out, but I put them on the screen. It's separation, separation, or strengthen. To separate or strengthen. Now, the reason I say that is because we do believe, again, this goes back to where, where we're starting in terms of our foundation, we believe that in every hardship, in every trial, in every experience, that we believe God has the ability and is going to use it to strengthen, our, to strengthen us, to strengthen his children. 
That no matter the hardship, no matter what it is, there's going to be something in there he's going to use. He's going to walk you through. We believe it's a growing, right? It's a growing process. He's going to use it to strengthen us and wants it to strengthen us, no matter what we go through. But at the same time, we have an enemy, okay? We have an enemy of our souls and an enemy of our hearts who is doing everything he can do to take our rock-bottom experiences and separate us from God. Doing everything, every lie he can tell you, everything he can convince you of in that moment to try to create separation from you and from your good, good father. Now, I'll, so, I'll talk about separation for just a minute, and then I'll kind of contrast it with, with um, the strengthening. But, but really, for me, one of the ways that our rock-bottom moments tend to be so much worse than they really need to be. Like the, one of the ways that we make our rock bottom experiences worse, our suffering worse, is what we bring into them. It's what we bring into the valley. Matter of fact, I wrote this for your notes if you want to write it down. Our suffering is made worse when it's combined with our false expectations and our presumptions. And you're going to see this even come out a little bit in what Haman writes. But I think it's good for us to note and for us to acknowledge. That suffering is bad enough as it is, whether it's circumstances, whether it's consequences, whether it's your choice, whether it's something you did, whether it's something, something else. I mean, the bad parts of life, the fact that life is pain is already hard enough as it is. But when we bring into that and combine in that our false expectation that as a Christian, we shouldn't feel that way. As a Christian, we shouldn't be, be experiencing that. I'm, again, I'm not just saying it from you. I grew up in a tradition a biblical tradition that was kind of an underlying rule that if something wasn't going on right in your life, it probably was your fault, right? You probably did something. You might not have enough faith, right? It's probably some secret sin, like you won't tell us, but you know, the stuff that you're going through, you're probably, you know, God's teaching you a lesson. And it's hard enough as it is, let alone tacking on and combining those things with our false expectations that when we feel hopeless, even though we know we're not hopeless, when we feel hopeless, that we could never share that with someone because they would immediately judge us. We could never really share the despair in our hearts with another Christian because, again, we kind of stink at this. We kind of stink at walking with people through their rock-bottom moments. But a big part of it comes with our false expectation. And I, I just highlighted a few things that we, as we read Psalm 88, I highlighted a few things you'll see in Haman's uh, descriptions that I think are, are kind of red flags as to whether or not we, if we experience some of this, whether or not we're really bringing in some false expectations into our valley, into our rock bottom experiences. Here's some descriptions. One is frustration. Obviously, with any expectation you have, you know, between expectation and reality, you always create frustration. And so I look at the frustration when you, he, when you hear him say, God, I'm crying out for you. I, I come to you day, I come to you at night. I day by day plead with you, but I'm getting nothing, right? Jim at Life Group just talked about how he heard from God this morning while he was brushing his teeth about something stupid. And I've been praying for five months and heard nothing. Oh, don't, you snicker, you know I'm telling you the truth, right? It's frustration because we have the expectation, that we deserve answers, that we deserve to hear from God, and that we deserve not just a peace, not just a feeling, we deserve logic. So he's like, I'm crying out to you, I'm crying out to you, God, I, I, I need you, but I'm not getting anything. You see the frustration. 
you also see the, the, the sweeping accusations, right? Where he's like, it's your anger that's engulfed me. You've driven my friends away from me. God, it's, it's your, what he's basically saying is that God, all of this is your fault. This is your fault, God. And that's a part of even some of the expectations we bring into sweeping accusations, exaggeration. I know that you're, you're guilty of this just like I am. You see that in, in there where he says, you know, I've had this trouble since the days of my youth. You know what that translates to? I've always had this problem, right? God, you have never come through for me on this. God, you have, God, this has always been a, you've never, I've never felt you the way I needed to feel you. I've never, you've always since the, I mean, this is just the, the exaggerations and the sweeping accusations come out. And then there's the sarcasm. Now you could call this sarcasm, you could call this uh, interrogation, you know, in terms of a, these rhetorical questions, but it does come out very sarcastic with Haman, right? This is, in my old tradition, this is borderline blasphemy, okay? Where he's basically like, hey, can the dead praise you? No, right? Can those in the darkness praise you? No. And you could, you know, part of that is his heart saying, I want to praise you. I'm a music director for friggin', you know, poets and psalmist people. Like, we're supposed to be writing things that praise you. But I'm close to death and I'm experiencing this darkness. Can the dead praise you? No. So why are you doing this to me? And the last is, um, what is the last? last is isolation, right? Which I tend to think happens a little more easily than we think. Where he says, the darkness is my closest friend. This is, I've always been alone in this. You've driven all my people away. I have no one. And if I hear one thing more common than anything else is when I talk to people or I'm engaged in a counseling conversation or people want to begin to share with me stuff they're going through, I mean, I'll hear this all the time, and I'll be like, well, tell me what's going on, you know, what's happening. And there's an apprehension, and then there's usually something along the lines of, well, you know what, I'm just not sure you'd understand. Well, we probably have some people in the church that could probably help you. No, I'm not sure anyone has ever gone through what we're going through. There's something about that that with, even with our expectations and our false expectations and the enemy's work that we begin to isolate ourselves and feel like we're the only ones that have ever walked through this issue or ever had this problem. Our suffering is made worse when it's combined with our false expectations and what we bring into them. I think what we can take away from Psalm 88, the biggest thing I want you to take away from Psalm 88 is that God is perfectly fine with our despair. That this did not, this didn't stop. I mean, Haman was a part of one of the greatest, I mean, secular the, uh, theologists and things, secular, secular uh, uh, literary folks, they basically, they've, they've looked back and said the Psalms, the collection of Psalms is one of the greatest liter literary artworks alive, like, like around. Like it's one of the most amazing and most impressive things. Haman had a part in about a dozen of those things. God was not upset with his despair. God was not mad that Haman had, the, had this prayer and this kind of desperation with God. It didn't stop him from being used in an incredible way by God. He knows you. He knows He created us. He knows. He knows our despair. He knows our pain. He knows how we respond at the rock bottom. There's other examples, just I won't give you the full story, but I'll, I'll give you some things that kind of showed up in their rock bottom moments. Uh, Job, if you had never read the, 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 the story of Job, 
A lot of people go to the middle of Job and sort of the end of Job where in the middle where he's lost everything and and uh, his friends kind of, you know, uh, don't act properly, and his wife tells him to curse God and die, and, you know, and then you get to the, go to the end when he asks a lot of why questions of God, and God finally responds, and he doesn't respond in a way that Job really wants him to respond, but he, he responds. A lot of people focus on that, but I'll be honest, one of the things that comes up right at the very beginning of the story of Job, is, which is really the kind of setup to the story, is the primary thing that you see playing itself out in the entire book. And that is when Job, right? That is when Job uh, shows up and he says, he says, uh, look, at, look, at my, look at my servant Job. I'm pointing at Scott, but this is Job, okay? Look at my servant Job over there. He tells the enemy, man, Job is just, Job loves me and he serves me. And the enemy says back, no, you know what? Job only does that because of what you give him. Job only does that because of how you've blessed him. Job only loves you and serves you because he's protected. And the enemy says, let me take that all away from him, and he will curse you. And that's the story of Job. And the reality is, again, at work in this, in this story is, is this undercovering where the enemy wants to convince Job and convince God through all of the attempts that your relationship with God is purely transactional. That Job's relationship with God was only because God blessed him. Only because his life was good. But once his life would get bad, he would separate himself from God. And what you see throughout the story of Job is that Job did not do that. Job, Job asked tons of why questions. Job cried out in desperation. Job, try, Job tried his very best to understand what was going on, even though he couldn't understand. And at the very end, God says that Job honored him. He tell, God says, Job honored me. Not, not that he wasn't allowed to have his rock bottom moment, but he honored me because he came to me with those questions. He brought those questions to me, just like Haman. He brought his request to me, and he's honored me, and his relationship with me is not transactional. You know, when Jesus shared in Matthew, when he shared about the... Um, uh, the, the wise man who built his house on a rock and the, the foolish man who built his house on the sand. That's a, it's a parable about faith, a story about faith. But one thing I always pull away from that story because he says when the storm comes, right? When the storm comes and blows away the foundation, I'm always like, look, it's, it's the storm that will always reveal the foundation of your faith. Oh, I can promise you if you have a transactional relationship with God, your, your rock bottom moment is going to reveal it. Your suffering is going to reveal that you've got a transactional relationship. You've got a transactional religion, not a relationship with God. David, King David. King David goes through one of his worst rock bottom moments because of his own personal sin, because of consequences, of decisions that he made. He commits adultery. He sends the, the husband to the front line of battle and arranges for him to be killed to try to cover up his sin. And when he is approached about it through kind of the, through basically a story, when the prophet approaches him about it, David responds with a self-righteous judgment until it's fully revealed that it's him he's talking about. And he's told the consequences of his sin are going to be vast. He's told that they're going to last him way into his future, that everything he did in private is going to be on the front lawn for everyone else to see. But he also tells him that the boy that the pregnancy of, of, of Bathsheba 
that the, that the child is going to die. And yet David responds by going to God and going to God day in, day out. He goes to God and he begs for the life. He begs for mercy for the life of this baby. And if you read Psalm 51, that's just another psalm I'm not going to get into, but if you read one, read where his heart was. Psalm 51 tells you where David's heart was in this time frame. He says, look, God, you don't want a sacrifice. If you wanted a sacrifice, I would give you a sacrifice. What you want is a contrite heart. What you want is for this moment to humble me, to, to allow the consequences of my sin to humble me so that I can be strengthened by you. And let's just be honest, for most of us, the consequences of our sin, our pride is what separates us from God. The fact that we don't want to walk through the consequences and the fact that we don't think we should have to as a Christian will pull us in pride and pull us to separate ourselves from God. Paul, the reason I love Paul's example is Paul's answer, Paul was praying and, and Paul's answer was basically a no. It actually wasn't a full no, it was just that he, you know, God answered his prayer in a way that was, that was not what necessarily Paul was praying for. I want to read that scripture so you can see the, the dynamic happening, but this is what I feel like we run into a lot when it comes to our rock bottom moments. Go to uh, 2 Corinthians. It says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, this is Paul writing, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, most people don't know what that was. They don't know if it was emotionally, spiritually, physically, how he was tormented, what the thorn was. All we know is it was a problem for Paul. And Paul was saying, look, I, I just keep begging God. I keep asking him and pleading him to take it away. It says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And he goes on to say, but he said, what God said to me was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. He says it again, this is why for Christ's sake, I delight in my weakness and, in, and it, sorry, I delight in my weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak, I am strong. Now, this, now, the reason I said this again, this is something that I think you and I, going back to our false expectations, right, we experience a lot when it comes to our rock-bottom moments, is that we, we are kind of taught and trained, which I don't necessarily think is wrong on the surface, we are trained to ask and pray and request the power of God, to, 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 to pray for the power of God. And that's what Paul's doing. I prayed that he would take this thorn away. I want the cancer gone. You know, I want the healing uh, fully restored. I want this experience, the consequences of this to be completely void. I want, I want you to step in. I want you to intervene. I want you to move in a mighty way. That's our prayers. That's what we pray for. And Paul said, yes, I prayed for the power of God, but I didn't get the power of God. I got what? What do you get? Yeah. Yeah. And I, listen, let's just all be really honest. Let's just be honest with one another this morning. When you're praying for the power of God to move, to work like a catapult, to get you out of your valley as fast as possible, but instead he gives us grace, what is our natural response? Okay, God, uh, you know, give Scott grace. Give Scott grace. I want power, right? No, 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 G give him grace. I, I'm praying for power. 
That's how we usually respond. We respond in such a way because of our expectations, because of what we bring into those rock bottom moments that, look, I understand that you give grace to some and I heard the verses and I know what they said at church and I know that it's sufficient, but I'm not really satisfied with that. I need you to come in power or I'm gone because we've allowed that to be something that's going to separate us. God, you're going to answer this prayer and you're going to do it this way or I'm out. And Paul says, no, it's not really how the whole power thing works all the time. You may not get what you want, but you will get what you say it out loud. Yeah, yeah, they had the song right. That's all I'm saying. Your grace is sufficient for me. I love when he says that. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. And, he, and the way Paul says it is that even in the grace, it's power. It's his power that's made perfect in my weakness. So that when I'm weak, he's strong. Like that's how, that's how it works. I'm praying for power. I want the power to look this way. But when I receive grace, I'm still receiving power. It just looks different than what I bring into the value. Into the, it looks different than my expectations. Jesus has a, a, a conversation with Peter. And in just this two-sentence verse, like, I'm just telling you, Jesus really breaks it down for Peter, everything we talked about this morning. Peter's getting ready to go through one of his rock-bottom moments. Peter's getting ready to deny Jesus three times. That when push comes to shove, when it all mattered, when it was all on the line, Peter was going to bail. He was going to bail and deny Jesus, and he was going to feel the shame and the regret immediately when the cop crowed. That's what we know. And Jesus, knowing this, says these words to Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, which is um, Peter, Simon, Peter, Satan has asked to, what's the word? Say it out loud. Yeah, to sift you all as wheat. You know what sifting does? Sifting separates, right? That's, what, that's the role of sifting. Sifting is the work to separate you. He says, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And then when you have turned back, you'll strengthen your brothers. Here's Jesus saying, look, this is going to happen, whether you like it or not. But Satan wants to sift you. He wants, he wants the shame and the guilt and the pain and the ridicule of you denying me and walking away and all the rest of your guys running away. He wants to try to get that to separate you from me. And he's saying, but Peter, I, I'm, Peter, I'm praying that your faith will not fail in this moment. And that when you turn back, when you make the turn, that not only would he be strengthened, but get the charge there, that you will strengthen others. You will strengthen your brothers. And I'll just be honest, today I'll share briefly um, my story, or really our story, of one of our rock-bottom moments um, I'll try to make it brief, but um, one, a rock-bottom moment for, for Tracy and I was during our first uh, miscarriage, during our first miscarriage. And um, for us, you don't necessarily have to believe what we believe, but we we're absolutely convinced that life begins at conception, and 
And so it didn't matter that it was an eight or nine week uh, miscarriage. We, we believe that a life was taken. We believe that that was a baby that was taken. And, and, and the only one left to blame was God. He was the only one left to blame. And there was a lot of work. I'm telling you, Tracy and I, you know, we grieved in very different ways, but there was a lot of work. I'll just share for me personally. There was a lot of work on the enemy's part trying to sift me, to separate me from God. Why? Because we had taken a little while to get pregnant. We weren't sure if we were going to, you know, have babies. We'd been married about nine years at that point, almost 10, and we weren't sure we were going to be able to have kids. And so we, we were praying and praying for power, right? We were praying and praying. And, 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 and then, you know, in the same process of time, you know, God sort of got a hold of my heart and I surrendered to full-time ministry. I surrendered to go and do the thing that I told God I would never, ever, ever do with good reasons. And yet I surrendered to it. I finally said yes. And doors opened and I finally, I took my very first full-time job in ministry right when we found out we were pregnant. And then just a little two months later, we lose the baby. I'm telling you, the work the enemy tried to do to sift me in my heart, to tell me that I could not trust God, that he would not honor the, 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 the surrender I had made, that this is the way things were going to be. He doesn't care that you've done this. You can't trust him. You can't put your faith in him. Like, I mean, the, the sifting to try to pull me, to separate me in my grief, in my valley, in my, my, my rock bottom moment, to pull me away, I'm so thankful didn't work. I'm not saying there weren't times. I'll be honest, my prayer with God looked a whole lot more like Psalm 98 or Psalm 88. It looked a whole lot more like Psalm 88 than I probably even at that point in my life was probably even comfortable with. But it was a lot of accusations and it was a lot of exaggerations and it was a lot of frustration and it was a lot of isolation. But through the process, we began to get strengthened. And we took the opportunity to try to strengthen others. And Tracy, you can ask her yourself, but we are very intentional. We are very intentional that when we hear someone go through, we hear someone that has had a miscarriage, we, we, we do our very, very best to go and engage them in their rock bottom moment. We, we, go, we go to get, let, them, let them know that it's okay to be there in their pain. We don't try to throw any stupid cliche Christianity phrases at them to try to help them feel better or to get them through it faster. We go to them and we say, you know what? You will make it through this, but for now it's going to be really hard. And the pain that you feel and the life that has been lost, you will grieve the way you would grieve anything. Because we know, we know that for, even for us, we were tried, we were sifted. The, the enemy wanted to do that to us. And we were strengthened through that valley. And now we know it's our job to strengthen others. And here, here's what I, I want you to know. I didn't preach this message today because I feel like the majority of you in this room are in a rock bottom moment currently. I don't really even believe there's probably that many. There, there probably is some, but there's probably not that many. But here's what I know. I know that you have been through them. I know that you will go through them. 
And I know that right now you more than likely have someone in your life, in your circle of influence, someone in your top five. You have someone in your life that is going through a rock bottom moment. And guys, we just got to get better. We got to be, get better as believers and as followers to share our stories, to share our desperation when we felt it, to share the moments when, when no, we didn't, we knew we, we knew we had hope up here, but we did not feel any hope in that moment. Again, we just, guys, I'm telling you, we do a disservice to each other when we skip over things. We tell people all the time, this is, this is fun. Not fun. This is, I say that in a weirdly weird, weird way. Anyway, you know, some people will talk, and you'll, you'll be in your life group, and somebody says, well, share your story or share your testimony. You're like, oh, that's great. Uh, yeah, well, I you know, came to be a Christian, and I did this and that. And, and then, you know, well, you know, our marriage started to have a little trouble, you know. As our marriage started to have some problems. And then you say, oh, but it's all better now. It's all good. Or, you know, something happened, and we were kind of, yeah, you know, financially some things happened, and then we, uh, but God took care of it. And we want to just gloss over the valley. We want to gloss over the suffering. And I'm the jerk. I'm the jerk. Tracy does, gets this for me too. I'm the jerk that's always like, yeah, but what were you really feeling? Yeah, and how bad did that hurt? Not that I want people to relive those moments, but I'm just telling you, we do each other a disservice when we will not allow ourselves to revisit our rock-bottom moments and use those moments to help strengthen others. We've all had our experiences. We need to get better about using them, knowing that you, God used it to strengthen us, using them to strengthen those in our lives. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. I thank you for all of my personal rock bottoms, and I know the struggle was real in terms of um, all the lies of the enemy to try to separate me from you, but God, I'm thankful even as Bridget prayed for the peace that you gave me in the times that I didn't see and I didn't understand and that I held on to my faith and that, God, I made it through some of those valleys and and allowed you to strengthen me. I pray that for every person in this room this morning and who's watching online, that, that they would let you do that with them right now in their rock bottom. Don't allow their false expectations to come in and, and pull them away, regardless of whether it's, it's just revealing a transactional relationship with you. Let them confess that. If it's revealing the fact that, that they don't feel like they should live through the consequences of their own sin and action, God, break them of that. Break their pride in that. They're, you're answering prayer with grace, and they're just stubborn, and they're not giving up because they want to see power. And God, I just pray that you would move in all of those areas to reveal to us how we can be strengthened rather than separate from you, rather than sifted. God, I pray today that, that, that our church, the people here, would become people that are not afraid of the valley. They're not afraid of, of crisis of belief conversations. They're not afraid to engage others in their rock-bottom moments because they themselves have a good theology of understanding suffering and understanding what you may or may not be doing in the midst of that and be able to walk with people through their pain and walk with people through their struggle and questions that they may not have answers to. And I pray that we would be a force 
that would bring that to this city, that would bring that to our community and our circles of influence, that, that people would understand that it's okay to be there. That doesn't change the absolute hope that we believe in. That it's okay to embrace and wrestle. God, just be with us today as you've been prompting our hearts individually with so many different things. God, may you finish the work that you started this morning. In your name, Jesus. Amen.